Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful Christmas worship today. Isaiah 714 is our text. We'll be looking at various passages, but therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. How can one baby make so much difference? Time to pay the tax. And somewhere on the outskirts of Bethlehem, which is already the outskirts of Jerusalem, a young Jewish girl gives birth to the most important baby ever born. Born in a barn because... No other accommodations were available for this poor, expected mother. The world had no room for the son of a poor Jewish carpenter. The kings of the earth went on waging their wars, and the merchants went on peddling their wares. The Bethlehem baby arrives unnoticed by the busy inhabitants of the world. And yet angels stand on their tiptoes and shout, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people everywhere. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. If he's so important, why not Jerusalem? If he's so important, why a carpenter's family? If he's so important, why not a little throne rather than hay and straw? Everybody missed it, but a few insignificant shepherds on a hillside, everybody else missed the message and the Messiah of God on that holy night that is more holy than all other nights. Reminds me of a cartoon that appeared in 1925, a publication called The New York World. It's become a classic. Two Kentucky farmers are discussing life over a picket fence. And one Kentucky farmer says to the other in the cartoon, Anything new happen lately? The other farmer responds, nothing much. A new baby was born over at Tom Lincoln's place, but nothing much important ever happens around here. If we think that Tom Lincoln's son, Abraham, went unnoticed by the Kentucky farmers and yet proved to be a man of courage, a man who would change the course of history, a man of strength and healing, then, of course, there's no comparison to the difference that the Bethlehem baby has made. And yet, at the onset, we are warned that something will be different about this baby here in Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. 
When the angel makes the proclamation to Mary that she should expect the birth of a child, why, she knows that it's more than unlikely. Mary knows it's impossible, for she is a virgin, and she protests, how could this possibly be? The angel answers in Luke 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, for the reason the holy offspring will be called the Son of God. With little fanfare and no acclaim, the little Jewish boy slips onto the earth during the night. Unnoticed, unwelcomed, unrecognized, and at least by Herod, unwanted. On that single night, everything changed forever, for it is the eve of our very salvation. Do we really understand the magnitude of that angelic message do we really comprehend what it means for Christ to come and dwell among men? Can we fully appreciate what God has done in sending us his son? And how can one baby be such a big deal? We're going to attempt to try to answer that question, part one today, part two next Sunday. How can one baby change everything? First of all, that baby saves us from our sins. That baby saves us from our sins. Isn't that what the angel said? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people everywhere. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. There it is. What's the baby going to do? He's going to save us. Save us from what? From the wrath of God. How? By putting our sin on his back. A savior. How can one baby save the world? He is the one who takes away our sins. You'll remember that his cousin, older by six months, John the Baptist, when his cousin Jesus when Jesus begins Jesus' ministry, cousin John the Baptist says there by the Jordan River, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Maybe in all of Scripture, in all the texts, that's the best description of Jesus. He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yes, the baby is such a big deal because he saves us from our sins. 
Or we looked last week at, at Matthew's account. In Matthew's account, when Joseph is told by the angel that it's okay to go ahead and wed Mary because, well, that which is within her is conceived of the Holy Spirit, the angel said, and she will bear a son, Joseph, and you shall name him Jesus, or Joshua in the Hebrew, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. You name that boy Yahweh saves, Jesus, Matthew 1, 21, because it is he who will save God's people from their sins. Now, I know it's hard to understand how of all the babies ever born or will be born, that there's some way in which this one saves us from our sins. Reminds me of the story of the bishop, Bishop Monk Bryan, describes he was going to a Christmas Eve service to preside, to lead in the Christmas Eve service of a church. The bishop's family was getting ready for Christmas Eve. The children were all getting ready for the candlelight service like we have on Christmas Eve. And on their way to the Christmas Eve service, the bishop's son asked the bishop, Dad, are you going to let us enjoy Christmas this year? Or are you going to try to explain it to everybody again? The Methodist bishop was confronted by his son. Are you going to try to explain it to everybody again this year? Or would you just be quiet, Dad, and let us stand in the awe and the mystery of the miracle called Christmas? Sometimes I feel like that Methodist bishop it is good news of great joy that he takes away our sins, but it's hard to comprehend and even harder for the guy trying to explain it. Why would God love us that much? Why would Jesus be obedient and accept the death of being crucified in the midst of two criminals? Ponder, ponder, how could God give up his only, his one and only son. The prophet Zechariah saw it all unfolding 300 years before it did, and he wrote these words in Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out upon the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over the death of the firstborn. They will look on the one they have pierced. They will mourn as if it is the death of an only Son. Thomas Cahill wrote, On Calvary, 
and that pause between the lancing of Christ and the arrival of Nicodemus with his hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe, his length of linen, and his permission from Pilate to place the body in his own new hewn garden tomb. And that deepest silence of human grief and on that most terrible of the world's many terrible hills, we recall the deep-throated prophecy of Zechariah rendered 300 years earlier. We have pierced him. We have pierced him. And we do mourn because he's the only Son of God. It is for our transgressions he was bruised. This morning I ask you to wipe the sleep and slumber from your eyes and greet the babe of Bethlehem and understand the confrontation of the gospel that this baby, unlike any other baby ever to be born, takes away your sins. It is the image of his crucifixion that haunts us. It haunts us because we know deep down that it is our sin on his back. We know that it is in our place that he dies, and we know that he receives the wrath. That's what he saves us from, the righteous wrath of God. He saves us from the wrath of God by receiving that wrath himself. The message of the babe of Bethlehem is something new. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people everywhere. It's not a great news. It is the great news. It is good news. It is the good word of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John writes in John 3, 16, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have a forever life. That same apostle John writes even earlier in an epistle, if we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves. And if we say we have no sin, the truth is not within us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. He comes to save us. First of all, this baby is unlike any other baby because 1 John 1, 8, he cleanses us. He forgives us through his death and resurrection. He who knew no sin 
become sin in our place. Now, what this means is this. You and I do not have to bear the burden of yesterday's sin. That's the miracle of Christmas. That you and I can take the baggage of our sin and drag it up beneath the cross where the blood of the Christ drips upon our sin and we are cleansed by the blood of the righteous Jesus. So if you really want the miracle of Christmas, you got to let that old sin go or else you have minimized the death of Jesus. There's a second thing we'll see this morning. We'll only look at two this morning. There's a second thing. He saves us from ourselves. We are born a very selfish person, are we not? If you don't believe it, go back to the preschool section of First Baptist Church. It's the most selfish creatures on the planet back there. They're in the little red baby buggies, and should the teacher hand out a cracker, I've never seen a preschooler say, wait a minute, there might not be enough for everybody, let me pass this one down. It does not happen. In fact, the baby will grasp that one cracker in his little hand, and if you hand him a second cracker, it makes no difference that the baby Baptist brethren in the buggy right beside him have no crackers. He will hold on to two crackers. In fact, he may reach over and put two in one hand and get the other baby's cracker and yank it away from him. What a way for baby Baptist brethren to treat each other in the buggy. But they do. I've seen it. They are selfish. Each one of us is born that way. You ever have your son say to his sister, you know, last, last Sunday I got the big piece of cake. I'm just going to let you have the big one today. No, it's a tooth and nail battle. It's mine. Probably after mama, the second word babies learn is mine. Mine. We got to be saved from our little baby selves. Malcolm Muggeridge, described as a supremely secular British commergent, visited an Indian leprosarium run by the Missionaries of Charity, that is, the sisters founded by Mother Teresa in Calcutta. Now, Malcolm Muggeridge had always imagined that a healthy, secular humanism is the truest approach to life. Just be human. You don't need the divine. Just be human and treat people humanely. And that's the best philosophy of, of life. And then when he went to the leposarium run by Mother Teresa's sisters, he realized while strolling through that facility, built with love for those who were unwanted by everybody else, the lepers, that a humanist vision 
can make no account of lepers, much less take care of them. That a humanist approach to life, a godless, there is no God, man is supreme, just be human, that kind of philosophy, a void moral philosophy cannot take account of lepers, much less take care of them. To offer humane treatment to humanity's outcasts, to overcome their lifetime experiences of petty human cruelties requires more than what humanity can muster on its own. Humanist, Muggeridge realized, with the force of a sudden insight. Humanists do not build and care and tend for leprosariums. They can't do it. By nature, we're not that good. It takes something outside of the human experience to make us give up and risk taking care of a leper. We hear the the strange voice of Amos echoing here, who said to the Israelites, you are trampling down the poor, you're building yourself stone mansions, you're depriving the poor of justice in the courts, you are selling the needy for a pair of sandals, you're oppressing the poor. We hear Amos echoing here, and we hear Isaiah echoing here, because Jesus says in Luke 4 that he has come to fulfill the prophet Isaiah, that he has come to preach good news to the poor. That's who the gospel's for. Yes, the baby saves us from our sin, but likewise, he saves us from our selfish selves. In fact, I thought about Scripture this week. It is nothing but a record of selfish humanity, is it not? What's the first selfish story? Well, maybe you could get earlier and I could argue for earlier, but I started out with Lot. Lot chose, I'll take the green grass and I'll leave my poor Uncle Abraham with the thorns and the thistles. Yeah, he chooses the plenty for himself. Or you go forward a little bit and you have Ahab, who wants a vineyard next to the palace, and so he kills Naboth, his neighbor, to seize his vineyard, or King David seizing Uriah's wife, or it goes on, Achan hiding the stolen goods underneath the tent. The Old Testament, just a bunch of selfish humanity. Well, thank goodness it gets better than the New Testament. No, it doesn't. There you have the disciples arguing over who's going to be the greatest. When the kingdom of God comes, when the Messiah is on the throne, they argue while he's talking about dying and going to the cross. They're arguing over who will occupy the seats at the right and the left hand of the Messiah. Or in the New Testament, it's the prodigal son who says to a daddy, you give me what's coming to me. Or the older son who's mad because some of the inheritance has been squandered. From David in the Old Testament to the disciples in the New, we are plagued with self. And then there's that Matthean account of 
Herod the Horrible. Sorry, I just never thought great fit him too much, so I changed it to Herod the Horrible, who murders the babies. Why? Because they might want, the baby might want his seat on the throne. Herod could not accept that someone else might take his place, that someone else might take his power, that someone else might inhabit the people's praise, and so he kills, destroys the babies of Bethlehem. The baby saves us from ourselves. Fred Craddock tells the story of a missionary sent to preach the gospel in India at the end of WW2. After many months in India on the mission field, it was time for his furlough to go home and be with family. The church wired him the money to buy a ticket on the steamer to make his way back home. He had to go to the, the port city to get onto the boat and it just happened at the end of World War II that the Jews were fleeing Europe, fleeing Germany. They were sailing literally all over the world looking for a place to live. In this particular port city in India, the Jews were staying in attics and basements and warehouses. They were been allowed to come for a while in transition. And this missionary to India while in the port city about to get the ticket on the steamer to come home, he walked into one of those attics where the Jews were staying, and he shouted out, Merry Christmas. And they looked at him as if he had lost his mind, as if he were crazy. We're Jews, you know. Oh, I know that, said the missionary, but Merry Christmas nonetheless. Now, what would you like for me to buy you for Christmas? Well, to his surprise, they answered, we like pastries, good pastries, like the ones we used to have back in Germany. Could you buy us some pastries for Christmas? So the missionary went out and he searched and he, he took his money that was supposed to be used on his ticket to come back home to buy the pastries. And he had to wire the church and say, send me more money for a ticket back home. And not surprisingly, his supervisors asked the missionary, we've already wired you the money for a ticket back home. What on earth did you do with your money? And he wired back, I bought Christmas pastries for Jews. And they wired back, why did you do that? They don't even believe in Christmas or Jesus. And he wired back, yes, but I do. Yes, but I do. The Bethlehem baby saves us from ourselves. Michael Iaconelli tells a story about a deacon in his church who was, well, Sorry, guys, a deadbeat deacon. He didn't do anything he was supposed to do. 
When it was his turn to minister, he didn't minister, didn't take care, just he wasn't really doing anything. And so the pastor approached the deadbeat deacon and said, I've got one job for you to do, and if you do that, I'd be so grateful. Once a month, our youth are going to start going to they called it the old folks home, a, a nursing home facility, and they're going to hold the worship service. We're assigned to do it once a month. Could you, 12 times a year, once a month, could you take the students and could you drive them to the old folks home where they can hold the worship service for the residents? He said, that'd be perfect. That is something I can do. And so he agreed to drive the youth once a month. The first Sunday there, he was in the back with his arms folded, and the youth were up there doing their thing, leading the worship service, and all of a sudden, somebody started tugging at his arm, and well, he looked down, there's an old man in a wheelchair pulling on his arm, so he let the old man have his arm, and the old man held his hand for the entire hour of the worship service. The next month, it was his turn to drive the students, he drove the students again, and the old man Again, came up to the deacon in the back of the room in the wheelchair and yanked on his arm and held his hand. The old man held his hand for the entire hour. By the third month, the deacon, when the old man rolled up, he just held out his hand and handed it over to the old guy. It happened month after month after month. And finally, after about six months, the old man wasn't there. And the deacon inquired, well, where's the man that always sits beside me? And they said, he's, he's dying. He's down the third hall, the fourth door on the right. And you can go see him there if you want to. And the deacon went in and the man indeed was dying. And he said a prayer for that man. He held his hand and he prayed that God would greet him the next world. Then it would be painless and peaceful. And as soon as he finished the prayer, the old man kind of squeezed his hand. And there was no other acknowledgement. But then he knew the old man had heard and responded. And as he was leaving, there was a young lady in the hallway who said... I'm so glad you came. He's been waiting for you. He said that Jesus came to the nursing home once a month and held his hand for an hour. And he didn't want to die until he had the chance to hold Jesus' hand one more He saves us from ourselves. Who has mistaken your hands for the hands of Jesus? Who has mistaken your feet for the feet of Jesus? Who has mistaken your words of encouragement for the words of of Jesus. Let us pray. Oh God, one baby makes all the difference in the world. We see today that he comes to save us from our sin and that he comes to save us from ourselves. May we hear the gospel 
and leave this place today forever changed. Amen.